Well, hello, everybody, and thanks so much for taking some time to tune in to the Bible Breakdown this week. This week, we are going to be in Romans 5 and 6. So the Gospel Project has wounded me because they have asked that we go over two chapters of Romans, and I try to keep this under 30 minutes. So realistically, I could probably spend about 30 minutes a paragraph on this section, Uh, you know, the epistles are just a little more dense than the narratives, but don't worry, I will keep it at a listenable uh, length and duration. So we're gonna have to skim over some parts, but that's okay. Um, Things we're gonna go through today, like I said, chapters five and six. So I'm gonna kind of summarize chapter four, what gets us to chapter five. I'm gonna talk a little bit about our status when Christ found us. I'm gonna talk a little bit about what it means to identify with Jesus' death and what that means for um, the sin that lives in us. And then going to finish up with Paul's discussion of um, being slaves to sin or slaves of righteousness. There's going to be a few Greek moments peppered in throughout this one. So if you really like that part, I think you'll be happy. If you do not like that part, you're not going to like it so much. But we're going to get through it. Um, Whether you like it or not, it's going to be hopefully profitable. That's the goal, right? So... Uh, we are again. We're starting in verse or in chapter five of Romans, and we're going to go through chapter six, and we're going to do our best to get through there. So, um, what gets us to where we are in chapter five is uh, Paul is using Abraham as an example, and he's using Abraham as an example of why um, justification or our salvation, um, God's forgiveness that's through Christ, comes through faith, and that it does not come through. Uh, the law or circumcision. So um, if you were a Jewish person at that time, those would be the things you were kind of hanging on to, uh, to think I am a child of God because I have the law and because I'm circumcised. Um, And really what Paul's point is, is he's going to say that in uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, it's going to say that, and God counted his faith as righteousness. And so he's using that as a springboard to say, um, He was given this, he was counted righteous through faith. And that was before the law was given and it was before he was circumcised. And he's really going to kind of play out that argument that justification comes through faith. It's never been through an adherence to the law or through a physical sign of circumcision. But that faith has ultimately always been um, what brings justification and using Abraham, the patriarch of the entire Jewish nation to make that point. So pretty solid argument there. And then when we get to chapter five, um, he basically starts in uh, the first five verses um, building on that, saying, therefore, we've, since we've been justified by faith, um, he's talking about the access we have, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, um, and that um, we can we can hope even in the midst of suffering um, because God's love has been poured out through the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of what's going to get us to where we're going to read our first passage. So I'm going to read, um, starting in chapter 5, verse 6, and we read through verse 11. It says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So uh, verse 8 here is a relatively popular one in terms of gospel presentations or um, things that we might understand about um, our salvation. It's a really nice verse that um, really has a, a ton of depth to it. And really, that's where I want to start. It's kind of deciding in our hearts how to view ourselves and how to view Jesus, how to view our standing and the actions of Christ and put them in proper perspective. So really the point of this little paragraph here is that we were sinners when Christ died. We were sinners when Christ decided to die, when the Trinity decided that was the course of action. It was all uh, before we had done a single thing that would we could even think would merit righteousness or salvation. Um, this verse really pretty explicitly tells us that Christ died, and we know that he died willingly. We see that played out uh, in a, a lot in John, where he talks about how he willingly lays his life down for the sheep. But Christ willingly died while we were still sinners. So really what the practical outpouring of that is, is that we didn't bring anything to the table. There was nothing that we were bringing to the table that merited what Christ did. In verse 7, you see Paul's kind of even making a a little bit of a concession. You know what? If there were a really good person, somebody might consider dying for them. Um, that might be somebody, you know, if um, whoever you think of in history, that's just a person of really high standing. Would you be willing to die so that person could have their ministry? Well, he's Paul's kind of saying, maybe. Yeah, I could see that that could happen. But he paints the very accurate, honest picture of who we actually were, that we were still sinners, that we were still weak. That's how he describes it as well. Um, and that we were under the wrath of God and under those circumstances when Christ died for us. And so verse 10 really kind of serves as this greater to lesser argument uh, that he's explaining. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So he's basically saying, okay, we were enemies and we, we were reconciled to God. And it was through the death of his son in a vacuum, a very negative incident, right? The death of Jesus um, before we know the ending, that is a sad moment. So we were reconciled through that moment. So he's saying, okay, if we were bad and then a bad thing happened and something really good happened that we were reconciled to God, how much more now that Jesus is resurrected, will we be saved by his life? So that's how I kind of take that to mean, uh, what I take that to mean that we'll be saved by his life. The fact that he has risen means a couple of things for us. The fact that he has risen means, one, that we will also rise again with him. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the coming verses. But also his ongoing ministry. Um, we know from Hebrews that he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Um, we know that Jesus' ministry to us is not over just because he died on the cross because he rose again. So if it was really difficult to reconcile us to God because we were bad and a bad thing had to happen, Paul's saying, okay, we're already reconciled. That good thing has happened then Jesus is alive. That's a good thing. Well, how much more can that be to our benefit? So that's kind of the argument he's making there. And the nature of our salvation, again, is that we didn't bring anything to the table. We didn't bring anything to the table in terms of deserving it. Um, we didn't bring anything to the table and causing it. Um, really, we are just the beneficiaries. We're the beneficiaries of what Christ 
did willingly and what he did out of love. Like we see in chapter five, verse five, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And that's all possible because of the death of Christ. So Paul is explaining to us that we were, we are the recipients of grace. We have received grace and that has been realized through the work of Christ. So then Paul moves on and uh, I'm going to just summarize verses 12 to 21 here of chapter five. Um, he's basically going to make this comparison of Adam, uh, the first man to Jesus. And the comparison is much more of a contrast than I guess a comparison. It's a comparison because they were both one man. After that, the differences get pretty pronounced. So Adam, um, death came through his sin. So through one man, through one man's sin came death is what Paul is going to say. And we remember that from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three, the uh, taking of the fruit they weren't supposed to have that um, through Adam's sin uh, and Eve's as well, though he's using uh, Adam as kind of a, a type and Christ as a type to kind of make his point here, um, that this sin by Adam led to death for all people. But the contrast being also through one man in Christ, there's a comparison, but the contrast is through one man's obedience that life was the result. So Christ uh, lived an obedient life on earth. He did not sin. Um, he was obedient to the will of the Father. And we see that obedience ultimately magnified in his willing death on the cross. And so through that one man's obedience, that one man who is fully man, fully God, um, we see life as a result of his obedience, even though as a result of Adam's sin, uh, we saw death. So he's kind of making this comparison, a, um, a comparison of two men, how one's obedience led to life, how one's sin led to death. So that's kind of going to be the main thesis of verses 12 through 21. So as we move into chapter 6, we're going to see Paul kind of explain a little bit what is the natural consequence then of these things? So um, he's talked about how we're justified by faith, that ultimately we were rescued while we were in a sinful state, and that we were reconciled to God while we were in a sinful state, um, that our lot in life was to be uh, in totally in sin because of one man's disobedience, but that that was overcome by the obedience of Christ. And so he's going to say, well, what shall we say then? So I'm going to read verses one through six of chapter six. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So uh, you, you may be familiar with the start of this in chapter six, this, what shall we sin? Are we to continue so that grace may abound? This rhetorical question that leads itself to a clearly negative answer. And so Paul's going to say here, by no means, this is not the first time he's used this phrase, um, and he will use it a few times more in Romans. So this phrase in Greek is me genoito, me genoita, and is used 15 times total 
in the New Testament. All of them are by Paul after rhetorical questions, except there's one time in Luke. Um, it's after the parable of the wicked vineyard workers. Um, I won't get into exactly what that is, but it's um, meant in a more literal sense than like, oh gosh, I hope that's not going to happen. Um, but Paul uses it as this really strong way of negating a rhetorical question. So he's asking this question, expecting a negative answer. So when he says, are we continuing sin that grace may abound? He's saying the answer is obviously no. And I'm going to tell you the answer is emphatically no, that is not how we are going to live. So this is a, a fairly common thing, a little bit of an uh, idiomatic thing by Paul. Um, that's fairly, um, unique to his writing, but basically what he's saying is there's a couple ways you could interpret it. Um, so that usually we see it by no means it could all, may it never be so absolutely not. Um, it's just a really strong negation is what he's going for here. And so what Paul is telling us here in the beginning of chapter six is that when we believe in Jesus, we identify with his death and what is put to death is our old sinful self. So we're dying to the life that we previously lived before we knew Christ. And then he's also saying, just like Christ was resurrected, we too are res resurrected to walk in a new way of life. And he's saying, ultimately, we will also have an ultimate bodily resurrection. But what he's really kind of focusing on here is the new life that we have to live here on earth. The, the life that comes after we've believed in Jesus before our physical death is what he's really focusing on. And so his kind of argument, and he says this in verse two, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And he's not asking so much, how is it possible? Um, Paul is going to uh, elaborate a lot on um, the flesh and the influence that it still has in our life. Our old sinful patterns still exist. Um, he's not saying it's impossible, but rather you could think of it as he's almost like, why would we? Why would we who died to sin still live as if we didn't die to sin? Why would we live as if we are still our, the sinful selves that we were before we met Christ? So that's kind of what he's asking. And so ultimately, when we think about what Christ has done, we are set free from sin. We have been set free from the sinful passions, desires, and habits that we used to have before we knew Jesus and what Paul is saying is since we've been set from free from that, we should no longer walk in it. He wants us to walk in a new way of life, in a way that's in obedience. And really, it's based on what Christ did. What Christ did was uh, sufficient to overcome even those most natural, most base sinful desires that we've had basically from the moment of our birth. Those things that are rooted in selfishness, um, in pride and greed, all of those things we're set free from. And we actually now have the freedom to walk away from those things. We're going to talk in uh, the next section of uh, this chapter uh, about our former slavery to sin. We didn't have a choice before Jesus, before the work that he does, before we place our faith in him, we really don't have a choice. Um, sin is the only thing we know. Sin is the only thing that we naturally are attuned to when from the moment of our birth is to sin. So this great thing has happened. We've had this faith. We have identified with the death of Christ Jesus. And what really is dead is our old sinful selves, our old selves that are almost forced to sin. And just like Jesus was resurrected, we are also raised to walk 
in a new life. And that new life can be made up of righteousness and obedience as opposed to being stuck in sin. So he's going to continue in the rest of this section up through verse 14, kind of expanding on that point. And he's going to say in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So given what Christ has done, don't let sin be what rules your body. You've been freed from that. You've been freed from that. And so we shouldn't walk in it. So then getting to the end of chapter six, starting in verse 15, I'm going to read verses 15 through 18. Paul says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Meganoita. There it is again. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." So like I interjected there, we see again, he's going to ask a rhetorical question. Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? And he says, absolutely not. By no means. May it never be so. That's not what the point of this is. That's not what the point of grace is so that we can continue sinning. And then he makes this uh, another kind of parallel. He says, basically, anyone, all of us really are slaves. All of us are slaves to the one we obey. And he says, you can either be a slave of sin and that leads to death, or you can be a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness, or then toward the, in verse 18, he's going to even call slaves of righteousness. So slaves to righteousness. And the word he's using here um, is the word doulos, which is the word for slave in Greek. Um, There's another somewhat related word, which is uh, the noun diakonos which that's the word we actually get the word, uh, the English word deacon from. And so it basically refers to a servant. So, uh, and it can have a few other meanings too. Um, but basically, doulos is the strong word. Um, like in, it really emphasizes the bondage that we are in. Um, whereas diakonos, um, it, it could refer to someone who is in servitude to someone else, but it can also refer to, to a ministry, a minister, um, someone who serves more willingly. So this word doulos, when he says, says we were slaves to sin or that we can continue to choose to be slaves to sin, he's using this as a really intense word. And it's important that we don't miss out on what he's intending by choosing this word. He's not saying that we just serve sin, but that we are in bondage to sin. And that's really what we were, like I alluded to earlier, that's what we were before we believed in Jesus. We were absolutely enslaved to sin. We had no other choice but to sin because that's that was our nature. Even the good things we did, they were out of sinful motives because we were sinners. I do think that there's a natural inclination in us to uh, do good things, but I think that oftentimes when before we know Jesus, and even often after we know Jesus, we can do a good thing for a bad reason. And that is just just speaks to our selfishness and it speaks to the sinfulness that um, that we used to live in. But when we believe in Jesus, we now have another option. For the first time in our lives, after we have faith in Jesus, we have another option. And that option is to be a slave to righteousness and ultimately to be a slave to Christ. 
Now, the, the imagery of being a slave to Christ, um, Paul also brings that up uh, in Galatians. Um, it's, it kind of it hurts the ears a little bit, I think, especially thinking given our context and uh, as American Christians, um, slavery is something that has been a major issue in our nation. So thinking about being a slave to Jesus doesn't quite, um, doesn't quite compute as far as um, our understanding of American slavery and then our understanding of who Jesus is. And I think that's totally fine that we don't have to draw a direct line to uh, from what slavery looks like, um, looked like in American history to how we serve Christ. But it's really, I think, more for us how we should take it. And of course, Paul had no idea of what American slavery would be like. But we need to draw, the line we need to draw is that it's not just a, a casual relationship and it's not just uh, it's not a relationship to a master unwillingly, but rather that we willingly submit ourselves fully to who Christ is. We willingly submit to who Christ is. It's not forced. Um, it's not cruel. Um, it's not unfair. In fact, the only thing that is unfair is that we have the opportunity to latch on to the righteousness of Jesus. Um, that's, that's the picture that's being painted. Now, a person who is a slave to sin, um, you can think about the worst slavery you can imagine um, in human history. And that's really what it's like, because it's a master that is, uh, at the end of the day, cruel, harmful. Um, it doesn't lead to anything good. It's demeaning to the person who's enslaved to it. Well, that's not what it's like to be a slave to righteousness or a slave to Christ. Um, ultimately, even though we are saying, I'm going to obey the will of our, my master when we become a slave to Christ, Ultimately, that master is perfect and good. He's better than any great, quote unquote, great slave owner who treated his slaves, quote unquote, nicely. Um, it's, he's perfect. He's the perfect person to serve. He's the perfect person to follow blindly. Um, he's the perfect person to be shackled to because we know that ultimately he is our savior and that he is fully good. So really to be a slave to Christ is actually to choose freedom. To be a slave to Christ is actually to choose freedom because we think that, and, and oftentimes if people who aren't believers will think of Christianity and they're like, ah, I really prefer my freedom to do what I want. Um, going into this faith, there's too many rules. Um, I, I really prefer my freedom. But I think it's a, it's a misperception of what is freedom. Freedom is the ability to choose anything. But if we haven't believed in Jesus, if we haven't received grace through faith, through Jesus' work on the cross, his resurrection, we actually don't have the option to choose righteousness. We only have the option to choose sin. So to be apart from Christ is really to be, um, is really less freedom because there's only one option and the only option is sin. And Paul's saying, hey, you know, when we uh, when we come to Christ, we have the option to choose righteousness now. And he says, you have the option to choose to be a slave of sin as well. That option is still available to you. But he asks why. Why would, we, why would we do that? Why would we shackle ourselves to our old sinful selves when we've been released to something so much greater? So ultimately, a, a faith in Christ, a saving faith in Christ is freedom. And we get to use that opportunity of that freedom to choose righteousness and obedience to Christ. Before Christ, we can only obey sin. After Christ, we have the freedom to obey him, to choose righteousness. 
And that's really what I'd like for us to finish up on today. Why do we often act like we're still enslaved to sin? Why do we act sometimes like we can't escape the sinfulness in our lives? And again, it's important to point out that there is still a fleshly part of us. And that's what Paul calls it, calls it the flesh. This part of us that still remains that desires sin. And we all know what that's about. I think we can all recognize that in our lives. But Paul's argument is, yeah, you, you do have that. And he recognizes the difficulty in it. Um, he's going to talk about that more in his letters. But he's saying we have the option to choose righteousness. So we should choose righteousness. So if I have the ability to choose freedom and choose to obey Christ, why do I still enslave myself to feeling like I have to know everything? I don't know everything. And you know what? Christ has never asked me to know everything. So why, why is that something I want to shackle myself to and enslave myself to? Why do I want to act like I'm enslaved to gossip? Why does it, why do I feel like, oh, well, if I can uh, mention this thing that this other person did, that's going to make me feel a lot better about myself and how I'm doing. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. It doesn't matter if that person's better, worse, the same. He knew exactly what I was when he died and he still willingly laid down his life for me. I don't have to be a slave to something that tries to prop myself up. I wasn't worth anything except for the worth that Christ gave me anyways. There's nothing I did that made me worth it. It was only because of his love and because of his grace. And why do I still act like I'm a slave to doing it to the way I would do things, to doing things my own way? Why do I think that if I do things my way, that things will ultimately work out or be better? Things have already worked out and have been better because of what Christ did it and the way that he did it. If I was, if it was up to my way, I would still be dead in my sin. But because he did things his way, which was ultimately to lay down his life in love, in grace, and ultimately to draw me to himself through these things, because we did things his way, now I have this opportunity to live in righteousness and in freedom. So why would I cling to the way that I want to do things? Those are the things that for me, that as I was studying this passage really came up. And I know, well, I hope that as you're listening to this, as you're thinking, that you think about those things that you're enslaved to, or that you act like you're enslaved to rather. That's kind of the point, right? We're not actually enslaved to it, but we still act like we are. That sin that just seems still deeply rooted. And sometimes even with this motive of, I think this is the best way sometimes, that we can fool ourselves into thinking it's the best way. But ultimately, we have to rest in the fact that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, that he made a way of reconciliation between us and God. And he has freed us from that sinful person that we used to be, the person that had no other choice but to sin. And he's given us the freedom to choose righteousness, obedience, love. He's given us the ability to do that and to do it in a pure heart through the Holy Spirit in us. So I just want to encourage you as you think through those things that maybe still identify you with your former life, your formal, former identity um, of sin, that we just make a point to let those things go and ultimately cling to who Jesus is because he's the one who made a way. and He's asking us to do things that while it can be hard to make the right decision, ultimately there's so much life that comes through it. And just like Paul mentions in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only that, we were that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And this hope does not put us to shame. Even if we're to suffer from doing righteousness, 
at least it means something. At least it produces something. When we suffer for our sinfulness and ultimately sin does bring suffering, there's no reward. There's only guilt. And in the, in the best, the best thing that can come out of it is a realization how much we need Jesus. So as, as we go from, from here, as we think about this, let's put to death those things that we think or act like we're enslaved to. And let's choose to, in the freedom that Christ has given us, choose obedience. And that freedom ultimately, um, in some ways, will look like a bondage. But it's a bondage to a master who is perfect and wants the best for us, is full of love and grace. And ultimately, obedience to him is going to be for our good and for his glory.